Turn in your Bibles with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We continue our journey through uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, last week, uh, as we looked at this time in Israel's history between uh, the judges and the monarchy in this, in this moment, in these years there when uh, Samuel is uh, supposed to be leading, he is the one that God has raised up, he is the one whom God has blessed. Uh, we saw at the end of chapter 3 that uh, throughout his life, God never once allowed his word to fall to the ground. That is, that every word that Samuel spoke came true. Every uh, declaration he made uh, was carried out. And um, we moved into chapter 4 last week, and we saw Israel ignoring that. God had given them this man, this gift, uh, this individual who spoke clearly, who spoke with conviction, who spoke with uh, correct a mindset and perspective of who God is and would have called Israel to right behavior, uh, to right practice, um, was ignored. Israel moved away from the Word of God. Israel moved away from the truth that God had put in their midst. And because of that, as we, we ended up last week in, in uh, verse uh, 10, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. It's a dark moment. It's, it's, it's a situation that in many ways looks hopeless. And, and as the rest of chapter 4 plays out, we see that hopelessness kind of settle in uh, on many within Israel. In particular, uh, we see Eli responding to the news of uh, his son's death, and also the loss of the ark. It says that once he was told of this, once this was uh, communicated to, to, uh, uh, to him, in verse 18 it says, He fell backward off the chair by the city gate, and since he was old and heavy, his neck broke, and he died. And Eli had judged Israel for 40 years. So now we have Eli, the high priest, um, has now passed away. Um, but we're not done. Eli's daughter-in-law was, was pregnant from his son Phinehas, and she had a, a child. Uh, she, was, she was having the child as all of this news was coming in, the, the loss of the ark, the loss of her husband, the loss of her uh, brother-in-law, the loss of her father-in-law. And um, she herself loses her life as she gives birth. To this child. She says, as she was dying, the women taking care of her said, don't be afraid, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She simply named the boys, she named the boy Ichabod. Ichabod. What does that mean? The, the word Ichabod used to, be, used to be understood to mean no glory or the glory has departed. But linguistic studies and so forth have, have come to, to understand that it's actually a question. Where is the glory? Where did the glory go? And her statement here is, is, is a cry. It's, a, it, it's, a, it's an expression. It's a, it's a longing for answers to the situation that she finds herself in, that Israel finds itself in, and that often we find ourselves in. Where is the power? Where is the presence? Where is the provision? Where is 
the glory. So often in our circumstances, in our situation, we go through a, a difficult time in life. Whether it's a loss of a loved one, the inability to, to find sustaining work, relationship struggles or difficulties, hardships within uh, a marriage that only the groom and the bride know about, other difficulties, our children, we're worried about them, our grandchildren, we're worried about them. What's going to happen next? And it's not all that rare for that all to pile up at once. It just seems that once that, that snowball starts rolling, it just gets bigger and bigger. You don't know how to respond. You don't know how to deal. You don't know how to cope with everything that life's throwing at you. It's just overwhelming. And you find yourself asking, where's the glory? Where's the glory? Where is God? Where is he in his power? I know he has it. I've read the stories. I've seen it in my own life. I got, I got friends and neighbors who, who have experienced the power of God and deliverance and healing and, and help and hope and restoration of relationships. I've seen God at work over and over and over again. And yet, right now, in this moment, at this time, in this circumstance, I don't see it. Where is he? What do I do? This was Israel's cry. This was Israel's, Israel's circumstance as well. And I think chapter 5 serves well to tell us where God is. God is still very much on his throne. Let's look at chapter 5 and what it has to say here. It says, after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, brought it into the temple of Dagon, placed it next to his statue. And when the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and returned him to his place. But when they got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And this time... Dagon's head and both his hands were broken off and lying on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso remained. That is why still today the priest of Dagon and everyone who entered the temple of Dagon in Ashdod do not step on Dagon's threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. He terrified the people of Ashdod and its territory and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of Israel's God must not stay here with us because his hand is strong against us and our God Dagon. So they called all the Philistine rulers together and asked, What should we do with the ark of Israel's God? The ark of Israel's God should be moved to Gath, they replied. So they moved the ark of Israel's God. And they moved it. After they moved it, the Lord's hand was against the city of Gath, causing a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city from the youngest to the oldest with an outbreak of tumors. And the people of Gath, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. 
But when it got there, the Ekronites cried out, They moved the ark of Israel's God to us to kill us and our people. And the Ekronites called all the Philistine rulers together, and they said, Send the ark of Israel's God away. Let it return to its place so that it won't kill us and our people. For the fear of death pervaded the city. God's hand was oppressing them. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. The writer here paints a picture of God's power and his pet presence. But he paints it where? He paints it in an area other than Israel itself. Today I want to talk about the issue of how big is your God? And I don't mean how big is he in terms of what he can accomplish, what he can do. That's a question we often face, and it's an important question, and it's probably a question we'll revisit later on in 1 Samuel. But what I mean by that is how big is your God in terms of his scope, in terms of his influence, in terms of the, the area that you're willing to say he rules over, both personally and, and, and universally. How big is your God? What does he control? Because what I think the writer of Samuel is trying to show us here, and what I think he's trying to tell us here, is that Israel's view of God and his glory and his power was confined to Israel. They asked, where is the glory? Where is the power? Where is the provision? Where is uh, the work that he's doing here? And the reason they couldn't see it was because for them it just happened, it just applied to their sphere, to their life, to their experience. All the while what? God is doing mighty and magnificent things in Philistia, expressing his power, expressing his, his holiness, his awesomeness there in the midst of this foreign land. And what the writer's trying to get them to see, what he's trying to get us to see, I think, is that if we come to understand how big our God is and look at uh, the world through a, a bigger lens, then in those moments, in those times when we're suffering from the struggles of where is God, where is his glory, we'll have answers that we can lean on that will sustain us, that will direct us, and that will ultimately bring us to the place in our attitudes and actions where we need to be. Responding to God appropriately. So let's look at how big God is according to this passage. The first thing I think we see about how big God is is that God is big enough to erase all doubts. When you look there in, in verses 3 and 4, you have what? You have two victories of God over Dagon. The idea, the, the image that, that the text paints for us here is that you, you had a temple, and just like Israel's temple, the Philistine temple had what they would call the Holy of Holies, the, 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 the throne room, so to speak, of their God. Okay, And that's where Dagon stood, and it would have had a threshold there, and probably right outside that threshold is where they put the ark. They wouldn't have put the ark in the Holy of Holies itself. That would have been considered sacrilege, but probably right outside that threshold in the presence of Dagon, as an, as an expression of submission to Dagon. That's what they were trying to communicate. 
gates. The text says that, that when they came in, that first night, that first morning after that first night, they found the, st the statue of Dagon had fallen toward the ark. It was doing what? It was figuratively, or literally in some respects, bowing down to God. God was victorious in that moment. But secondly, they, they did what? They stood, the, they stood their God back up, which we'll talk about here in a minute. And then the next day they come back in, and, and this time, once again, their God is, is prostrate before God, before the true God. But this time his head and his hands have been removed, which is a, a, a marker of a military victory in their culture. When, when you want a great military victory, it was customary to take the king of the kingdom you just captured and to remove his head and his hands as a marker of complete submission. He would generally parade his head around, kind of gruesome, but that was their culture. That was how they expressed complete total victory. No. Why twice? Why did God not break the hands of and the head off of the statue the very first night? He could have. That, that certainly was within his power, within his majesty, within his ability to, 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 break, to shatter that statue the very first night. But he didn't. He won twice. Why? Well, if you go back just a couple of chapters, the stories that we've already covered, Philist the Philistines conquered Israel twice. Remember? The whole thing started with the Philistines beating Israel, conquering them, defeating them, and then Israel come together and saying, we've lost, what can we do? I know, let's go get the ark. They bring the ark in, they lose the second time. So what's God saying here? The reason it took him two times wasn't because it took him two times, but so that he could communicate. You know what? Those two losses, those weren't my losses. I win both times. Okay, I'm in control here. It's, it's a it's a one-to-one. -one. It's, it's God addressing those things very clearly. It's, it's similar, in my opinion, to, to what's going on uh, in the Gospels later on where Peter has denied Jesus three times. And then Jesus meets him there on the shore and says, what? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three times he asked Peter the question, do you love me? Why? Because three times Peter had denied him. God is responding in this moment of restoration to, to bring that apostle, that disciple, back to a place where he could say, I truly do love the Lord. Our God is big enough to erase those doubts, to, to erase those fears, to, to remove those things that sometimes creep into our mind when we start to wonder, is God indeed big enough to take care of the world's situations? We look at what's going on in the world right now. It is a mess. 
I don't think there's any other way to define it. You got the Ukrainian struggle. You got our, our issues with China and with Russia. You got you got struggles going on in in, in Yemen and, and other places. There's there's just all sorts of havoc. You got the fears of biological warfare and and all sorts of other situations. And it's easy to look at that and to say, can God really deal with all this? The answer is yes. God is still very much on his throne. He has not given control to any other power. He's not surrendered his position or his place to any other creature, any other entity, any other reality. God is still on his throne. And we need to see that. We need to recognize that. And one of the ways we see that is to look beyond our circumstances. To look beyond how we're currently feeling and what we're currently going through to see him at work in other places. We worry about the decline of the American church, and we write, rightfully we should. The numbers are diminishing and across the board, even in evangelical churches now. Part of the reason that's the case is because Christians have forgot that we're, our task is to make disciples, not to, to build our own kingdoms. But I want you to understand and I want you to see that just because we're in decline doesn't mean God is. And there's revival in Africa. There's revival in Korea. Korea has the fastest growing population of Christians anywhere in the world. They're growing so rapidly that they're sending missionaries to America now. to minister to us, to show us who Jesus is. Even in very uh, strict, confined, controlled areas such as China, the church is blossoming, it's blooming, it's growing. It's important that we see that our failure to evangelize, our failure to make disciples has in no way limited God in his power and his expressions. He can erase all doubts. He can also overcome all opposition. I, I, I love I love this, this story uh, because it, it's such a, a powerful expression of our God in relationship to other gods. Uh, the first thing I think that is significant here is that God defeats Dagon in his own house. Okay. The temple where all this takes place is Dagon's house. It's Dagon's place. You know, we talk, we use this, the sports metaphor all the time, you know, not in my house. You got your own, you got your football fields, your home field advantages. You know, some are bigger than others. People like to talk about how 
powerful it is or how great it is in their own house. They get, why? Because you got home field advantage. Dagon had home field advantage. It didn't do him any good. But he had it. This is very similar, I think, to, to the story in Kings of uh, one of my favorite stories, Elijah and the Bell Prophets. Love that story. There's Elijah facing off against 400 Bell Prophets. Just Elijah, one little man, facing off against 400 others. And he says, Let's have a contest. Let's have a contest. I tell you what, this is what we'll do. You build an altar, put an animal on top of it. I'll build an altar, put an animal on top of it. And whosoever God answers with fire from heaven, we'll know that's the true God. And, and, and just to make it more in your favor, we're going we're gonna to make it fire from heaven, which is what? The very thing Baal should have been able to do. He is the thunder god. He's the lightning god. He is the Thor of Canaanite religion. There's one thing Baal should have been able to do. It's bring lightning down from heaven to grab that altar. There's one thing he could do. That was it. Because that's the very definition of who he is. So Elijah's doing what? He's saying, we're going to have this contest. We're going to have this contest on your grounds, using your rules, giving you the home field advantage with the requirements, the expectations. What happened? The Baal prophets, they cried, they, they screamed, they sang, they prayed, they cut themselves for hours just trying to get Baal to answer. Couldn't do it. Elijah steps forward, one little sentence. God, will you act today so that Israel may know that you alone are the true God? And boom! Not only did it take the offering, the text says it took the altar too. God said, I'm taking it all. That's our God. He goes into the enemy's realm, world, situation, and he whoops them. Jesus said what? The gates of hell shall not prevail against you. And what is that? That's not a defensive statement. That's not saying, because gates don't attack, y'all. Okay? Gates don't attack. Gates are stationary. So what's it saying? It's saying those gates won't be able to hold you back as you storm hell itself to rescue the lost, the hurt, the people who have abandoned God. They won't be able to stand against you. And when Jesus died, he went to the realm of the dead and he came out victorious. He went to the enemy's ground. He went to the enemy's lair and he came out the victor. That's who our God is. He's able to overcome all opposition. But the second thing we need to see about this passage is, as intimated with the whole Elijah thing, is that in the face of God, there really is no opposition. God I'm not saying there's no Satan. I'm not saying there's no evil. What I'm saying is there is nothing that rises to the level of God. We do not, as Christians, practice what's called a dualistic religion.
where you have this ultimate good and this ultimate evil fighting against each other. That's not Christianity. Christianity is we got God and no one else. Nothing stands in opposition to him. In fact, the reason we know that Dagon is, is fake, why? Because it says the people had to stand him back up. That verse... I mean, that, that, that should just scream out the foolishness of idolatry, that they had to stand their God back up. They had to put him back in his place because he couldn't hold it himself because he's nothing. Again, I'm not saying that Satan and his minions, demons, are not real. But what I am saying is, in relation to God, the one we serve, they are nothing. If God be for us, who can stand against us? Nobody. Nobody. And yet, we walk around defeated. We walk around depressed. We walk around overwhelmed by life circumstances. We ask the questions, where is the glory? And the answer is, the glory is there where it's always been. We're just not looking for it in the right places. text also tells us that God is big enough to, to have a lasting impact. In verse 5, chapter 5, it talks about the priest of Dagon entering the temple. They do not step on the threshold. Why? It's not fear of Dagon that causes them not to step on the threshold. It's fear of God. It's fear of Yahweh. That's where he hung Dagon's head. And so they're gonna they're gonna step over it. They're gonna circumvent it. They're gonna do whatever they can to avoid fearfully the God who won this victory. We don't want to make him mad. If he saw fit to put Dagon's head in this place, we're not moving it. We're not touching it. We're going around. Now notice this. It, it, it says, still to this day, Now, these events happened somewhere, somewhere between 1100 and 1000 BC. Somewhere in that range. Most scholars are convinced that Samuel was written as Israel went off into exile as an expression of repentance and explanation for why they were there. That happened in 587 BC. 
you're talking about over 500 years of the Philistines saying, uh-uh, I ain't stepping in there. 500 years of them acknowledging God's power and being afraid of it. That's a great statement of the lasting impact that God can have on a life, on circumstances. And while this one is plays out in the negative sense, we're not going to do that, God's influence carries through in positive ways as well to sustain us, to show us his deliverance, to show us his mercy over and over and over again. I don't know why God loves me. I certainly haven't given him any reason to. I don't know what he gets out of it because he certainly doesn't need me. But I know that love has seen me through 50 plus years. I know that love has seen me through some very difficult circumstances with my children, with my work history, with health issues and otherwise. He has sustained me. I've mentioned many times that one of the things I, I, I wish most that I had was the ability to, to get on the phone and call my dad for advice. I miss his wisdom. But God has seen me even through that. And he's granted me insights well beyond my own understanding in years. Because he's good. Sustains. So, where does that leave us? Where does these truths about how big God is leave us? It leaves us with only one response, and that is complete submission. To see that God's bigger than just our little situation here in Marshall, Texas. He's bigger than our little situation here in the USA. He's bigger than our circumstances and struggles in North America. He's bigger than our circumstances and struggles on planet Earth. He is bigger than anything we will ever face. And he sits on his throne in power, in majesty, in awesomeness, with angels flying around singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is, and is to come. And one day he will return in power as his son descends from heaven with the voice of an archangel, with all the armies of heaven at his side, bringing ultimate victory over sin and death itself, 
And then what? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Philistines came to that conclusion about Yahweh. He is God and God alone. He's so powerful. He's so mighty. He doesn't even need his people to win a victory over this whole nation. The Philistines were set up into a, 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 a circumstance of, of five city-states from which they ruled. God conquered three of them right here. Three of their capital cities he wiped out all by himself. How can we do anything but submit to him? especially when he's made that offer so generously. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you more work, and I'll put more stressors on you. I'll make your life more difficult. No, I will give you rest. Now get that. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the one who controls all things. He can do whatever he wants, and the thing that he wants to do is give you rest, give you peace, give you what? Abundant life, he promised. He's not just good. He's all good. The technical term for that is omnibenevolent. There's a $3 word you can throw around this week. My God is omnibenevolent. Because that's who he is. And if you're not seeing it right now in your life, let me invite you, let me encourage you to look a little bit further. Look at different circumstances. Look at different realities around the world. See what God is doing. And then ask yourself, is he not doing that here because I have not submitted the way I ought to, the way he's called me to? Am I not experiencing the abundant life he promised because I'm the one who's trying to control my life instead of, instead of letting him? Am I not seeing his power manifested because I've told him through my attitudes and actions, I don't want to see it. I got this on my own, God. I'm good. And if he shows you that that's the case, if you see and discover that that's the reality, repent and return to the God who loves you more than you can imagine and who's bigger then you can even begin to describe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you're bigger than I thought you were. That I'm coming to discover that I don't need to negotiate with you. I don't need to debate with you. I don't need to 
do any of that, which I'm so given to, to try and get my way, God, that your way really is the best. God, I pray that you help me to see that. God, I pray that you help my brothers and sisters here to see that as well and that we, we surrender to you, we submit to you, we walk with you, we follow you, that we're faithful to the call to make disciples. And that we're submissive to the truth that you are big enough. I ask that you use this time to help us to respond in a way that's appropriate, in a way that honors you with our lives. It's in Christ's name I pray these things.